Well, turn in your Bibles, please, to Titus 2. Thank you all for sharing. This has always been sort of a transitional Sunday. And thinking about those things is a good segue into this message. Always seems like a crossroads Sunday in many ways uh, to me. We evaluate where we've been and look to where we're going. In this particular passage, in that particular verse that we read earlier in the service, verse 11 is uh, so special at a time like this. Um, And it particularly suits, I think, after uh, Christmas since it speaks of the appearance of grace in the past tense. And so we look to where we've been in 2013. You can't undo that for the most part. And where am I going or what am I going to be in 2014? There's hope for you yet. And this passage teaches us more than anything what we've heard on the radio or In our car on the CD player that you've heard sung for the last couple of weeks, truly he taught us to love one another. What's that from? Yeah, okay, good. Shouldn't ask the musician. So what is the basis of this Christian life that we are to live and strive for? Starting at verse 11 of Titus 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. That's the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together. Accept our thanks, Lord, for your church. Our thanks and praise for your faithfulness in the past. And the hope we live with your faithfulness in the future. And we pray that you might take your word this day, open our hearts. Um, May we receive your word. May we act upon your word. May we grow as your Holy Spirit teaches us this day. For your glory, in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. And so Paul's telling the people of God in this present age, which is the age between... Christ's birth and his coming again. Uh, In this present age, we need to devote ourselves to personal holiness and 
unselfish good deeds and, and righteousness. That's the message he's sharing here. And there's a lot of theological meat in this message, as there is in chapter 3, the middle part of chapter 3 as well. But it's important that we know the context by which Paul is writing this to Timothy and ultimately to you and me, uh, the church. And the question is, why should we believe this thing called Christianity? Where do we find credibility in this thing called Christianity? They're asking this, that question 2,000 years ago, and he's asking this question for us today. Where's the credibility in it all when so many so-called Christians have done nothing but tear down the credibility of the gospel of grace? Well, the context is that Paul and Titus were planting churches on the island of Crete. Um, Paul has left him already. We see back in verse 5, and he says why he left him. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And if you read chapter 1, you'll read that the standards are very high for elders in the church. The only problem was in Crete, the, the, the supply of people for elders with that kind of standard was very, very slim. You couldn't find people to meet this standard. It wasn't going to be easy for Titus to do this. In fact, in, there was a verb in the Greek language in the first century to Cretanize. And that verb in the Greek language, to cretinize, meant to lie. That's why the issue for Titus was credibility. People wanted to know, is that thing you're proclaiming true? Is it credible? Is a culture very much like the culture we live in today? Um, you couldn't really believe what somebody was telling you. It's a culture full of liars. And they didn't even have Congress. So why should anybody believe those Christian preachers? Why should anybody believe the gospel there in Crete or in our world today? Well... There's one irrefutable argument, and the proof of the pudding is in the eating. If this good news actually transforms people's lives, it must be true. And you see that, that dichotomy in, in two verses. In Titus 1, verse 12, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. But then in verse 8 of that chapter, he describes what that transformation is. Be hospitable, lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. And that's why we have the gospel of grace that he proclaims there in chapter 2. And we'll see today that the, the we'll see quickly today, never fear, that the grace of God brings salvation 
The grace of God teaches us how to live. The grace of God teaches us to look for Christ's return. The grace of God is demonstrated in the death of Christ. And the grace of God is a message to be proclaimed. First, the grace of God brings salvation. See the nature of the incarnation here. The, the very first word there, verse um, 11, the word for, means that this passage, or these verses, this section, is connected to verses 1 through 10. For, or therefore. Whenever you see that in Scripture, it's connected to what came prior to it. It's a theological basis for living the way that God has told us to live or instructed us to live or empowered us to live. Christian conduct must be grounded in and motivated by Christian truth. Someone said the vitality of doctrinal profession must be demonstrated by transformed Christian conduct. And the purpose of this incarnation for the grace of God has appeared, what? Bringing salvation to all people. Christ's salvation comes for all people. Now, for those of us who believe in limited atonement, then we get attacked by this verse sometimes. What he's referring to when he says all people is all various kinds of people that he's already talked about in verses 1 through 10. He's talked about young people and old people and rich people and poor people and males and females and slave and free. Christ's salvation has come to them all so that they might be able to live godly lives. William Hendrickson says, male or female, old or young, rich or poor, all are guilty before God. And from them all God gathers his people. Aged men, aged women, young women, younger men, and even slaves should live consecrated lives. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to, to, to men of all these various groups or classes. And then you notice that verse 11, at the end of verse 11, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. All people in verse 12 becomes us. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldliness. All kinds of people. The great God's grace did not bypass old people. God's grace did not bypass women because they were women. God's grace did not bypass slaves just because they were slaves. God's grace did not bypass young children just because they were young children. That's what he means here. All these kinds of people. And so what does the grace of God mean? Grace is not a new subject to anyone. I mean, even the most pagan of pagans knows the first verse of Amazing Grace we just sang. But the tendency is to separate grace from the source. And we can't do that. The cry of the Reformation is sola gratia. Grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. 
And so Scripture makes it very clear what the centrality of God's grace is. And the Christian life from start to finish is impossible to live without the grace of God or apart from the grace of God. And here is the great thing about it. If you get nothing else today, get this. Here's the great thing about it. God's grace applied is always effective. God's grace applied is always doing what the flesh cannot accomplish. God's grace is effectual. God's grace is irresistible. Why do we need it? Why why does it need to be accomplished in the life of the believer? Well, among humans, you know, when we talk about grace, showing grace to somebody else, you give somebody favor, um, you're a blessing to somebody else. We just have real human terms for what grace means. But God's grace means something so much more than that. God's grace is a, is a grace that, that, what's he say there? Brings salvation. God's grace is Jesus Christ. Grace has appeared. The gift of the Savior to the world. God's grace saves the person who is in rebellion against God. God's grace saves a person who curses God, who stands against God, who opposes God, who sins against God, who lives contrary to God, who lives an ungodly life, or who's lonely, who's empty, who's without strength, who has any lack or need, who's without purpose and meaning. God's grace reaches down to those who've rejected God. Who are doing things their own way, uh, living their own way. We've heard that testimony from some of you just a few minutes ago. That doing your own thing and not allowing Him to. Living the way you want to live and not allowing Him, him to lead. God's grace... The Lord Jesus Christ reaches down to those who've rejected God. It reaches down to those who have ignored and neglected God and paid little attention to what He says and rescues them. God's grace, the gift of God to the world, is not something that's deserved. It's not something that's merited. And why? I mean, I'm a nice person. Why can't I merit God's grace? I deserve God's grace. I'm kind to my neighbor. No. Scripture teaches we fall short of the glory of God. Simply in that we are sinners. We do all kinds of things that are against the glory of God's nature. And so, just simply put, the imputed sin of Adam, we're cursed because of that. We reject the grace of God because of the imputed sin 
of Adam. We come short, ever so short of God's glory. And we see that throughout Scripture, Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We'll get to the rest of that verse in a minute. Isaiah 64, 6. We have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. And then Paul tells us, Romans 2.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the most telling of all, even before verse 23, Paul tells us, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And as a result of that, we are doomed. As a result of that, we are judged to spend an eternity Outside of heaven, away from God's presence in a place called hell. But there's such good news. God's grace has appeared, brought salvation to us, saves us from sin, saves us from death, saves us from hell. Second Peter verse chapter three verse nine says, "The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises. Some count slowness as patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance." Paul Hebert says it better than I can. He says. The entire program of redemption is rooted in the grace of God. His free favor, spontaneous action toward needy sinners to deliver and transform them. Men could never have formed an adequate conception of that grace apart from its personal manifestation in Christ, in His incarnation and atonement. Secondly, we see in this passage the grace of God teaches us how to live. Verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So there's, first he approaches that negatively, that we say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. We, 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 we see that in, in Hebrews 11 in the life of Moses. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. That's saying no to ungodliness and worldly passions. So he approaches it negatively, then he approaches it positively. He said to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. And all the specific instructions for that is in verses 1 through 10 here of chapter 2. They fit into the two negative and positive categories. Now, it's important, though, when we, when we see, especially when we see these positive categories, that we're not saying that that's the price you pay for the life God gives. You still can't earn it. Living self-controlled, upright and godly lives is just 
evidence of having obtained the life God promises by His grace. Guthrie says, God's grace educates us in the art of living well. Self-control, he's already used that word three times in this chapter. And that's what connects this passage with the previous ten verses. And when God gives grace to us, in other words, He has in view this transformation of our lives. That we be self-controlled and upright and, and, and godly. It's just a, it's, a, it's a summary. It's a small summary of Christian righteousness that He's sharing with us here. What a Christian's behavior ought to be regarding ourselves, regarding our neighbor, uh, regarding God. God's grace, the Lord Jesus, that particular gift teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust, to reject, to renounce, to give up, have nothing to do with those things. That's such a struggle, isn't it? You don't struggle with those things. You're perfect. And yet it teaches us this grace that appeared to say no to those things. Also teaches us to live soberly and to teaches us to live righteously um, and godly even in this world, which is a challenge, at least for me. What's self-control mean? Temperate, self-disciplined. It's the fifth time in these two chapters he's used that third time in this chapter. And self-control, it, it is nothing but controlling the desire for anything God has given us, God has created us to be, God has bestowed upon us. It's controlling that desire for anything and using it for its God-ordained purpose. Sex, food, material things. Taking what God has given us and using it only for its God-ordained purpose. It's a challenge. To live upright or righteously, doing right, treating others like we should, doing good to them, giving them their due share. Putting others ahead of ourselves. Yikes. giving and seeing to it that we are good stewards of every human on this planet, even the planet itself. And godly, what does that mean? Godly, to be like God. Living as God says to live, obeying Him in all things, seeking His will in all things. We see that in other places in Scripture, 1 Timothy 6.11. But as for you, 
O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. And Peter again, Second Peter 3, says, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? That's hard. But the grace of God has appeared. Providing that for God's people. The third thing we say is the grace of God teaches us to look for the return of Christ. Look at verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's, we just went through, oh, sorry, I didn't light the candles. Um, um, that's what we go through in Advent, waiting for the blessed hope. It's about Advent, God's Advent, Christ coming into our lives, coming into this world the first time, coming into this world the second time. That's what Advent's all about. You see, verse 12 ends with the present age, living God's lives in the present age. Verse 13 looks beyond that. To the blessed hope, his appearing. And we're, we are more concerned with the present age. We put on godliness in this world because we're waiting for the next. We put on godliness in this world because we're waiting for the return of our Savior. Our putting away the desires of this world will find its evidence in the next world. There has been one appearing of Christ, the incarnation we just celebrated. There will be a second in due time. And so uh, theologians say, just to give you a little theological lesson, the theologians say that we live in the interadventual period between the two advents. And then the last of verse 13 says, appearing uh, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's been a confusing phrase for theologians over the year. But since we just preached through John 1, we all have an understanding of what that means. And the Word was God. But it is Christ. God the Son, whose appearance we're waiting for. We're never said to be waiting for the appearance of God the Father. He says there, God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're waiting for the Son. It's that appearing, that, that word, the Greek word there is what we get our, Greek, our, our word epiphany from. That's the word that's always used in Scripture of Christ coming that we get our word epiphany from. And so the blessed hope and appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ are not two different things. The blessed hope is the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. The blessed hope is the appearing and that is what we are waiting for. That is our great hope. 
in this world. That's what we're looking forward to even as we seek to live righteous lives today, godly lives today. We cannot imagine the highest good and the appearing of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ will be so much for us. It will mean, that's what blessed means. It means happiness and prosperity and richness and benefits and the highest good, all the great and glorious benefits that we are provided here today, we have perfectly in that time to come. So the gospel of grace affects our behavior on the one hand by focusing on God's unmerited favor in the past. But it promotes godliness in our lives so that we might focus on the future as well. The blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. It's so crucial to see that this one, Jesus Christ, whom Christians look forward to meeting at some point face to face with Christ my Savior, face to face, what will it be when the rapture I behold Him, Jesus Christ who died for me. We look forward to that time. The one He gave Himself to redeem us. And that redemption to, 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 to set free For paying a price, we should be paying. We've been redeemed. We don't have to do that. And He redeemed us from all lawlessness to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. Verse 14. And that leads us to the fourth point. The grace of God is demonstrated in the death of Christ who gave Himself for us to redeem us. That that just clearly displays for us the unselfish nature of Christ's death on the cross, who gave Himself for us. Well, the purpose of the atonement is described here. Redemption. Gave himself for us to redeem us, redemption, to purify us. See that word? And to provide righteousness. Talked about the imputed sin of Adam on us. Those who are in Christ have the imputed righteousness of Christ in them. Gave himself for us. What's that, what does that mean? What it means Christ died for us. That's the simplest thing. We've heard that all our lives. If you've been in church all our lives. But, it, but it, it goes beyond that. It means He died in our behalf. He died for our sake. He died in our place. He died as our substitute. Jesus took our sins upon Himself, paid the penalty. He bore the verdict of our sin. He bore the condemnation for our sins. He bore the punishment 
of our sin. The guilt of our sin was put upon him. That's what propitiation means is that the price we were to pay was satisfied in Christ's death on the cross. That's redemption. That's how God demonstrated His grace. Romans 5, 8. But God showed His love or demonstrated His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, we've been kidnapped by lawlessness. He talks about earlier. We've been captured. We've been captivated by worldliness. And Christ paid a price to redeem us, to get us back. To set us free from being kidnapped and captured by lawlessness and worldliness. Ransom needs to be paid. Somebody has to pay that ransom. And he did. Hallelujah. We're delivered from the penalty of sin, which is death. By faith in Jesus Christ, we are redeemed. And that means set free from sin and death. Romans 3.24, justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Colossians 1.14, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So he, he died for his, uh, Peter would tell us, for his peculiar people. People of, for his own possession. He died for his people, very special people for his possession. Peculiar. And you look around, we're peculiar people, aren't we? It's the church he died for. And he died to stir us to good works. See that? Who are zealous for good works. And then fifthly, the grace of God is a message to be proclaimed. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Simply put, just speak forth these things. Preach, teach, Bear witness to these things, these truths. How we live in 2014? Well, we live by putting away worldliness and ungodliness and taking on righteousness, purity. And we preach and teach those things to ourselves, to each other, and to this world. Why? Because there is one who gave himself for us to redeem us. We're to exhort people in the grace of God. We're to encourage people in the grace of God. And he even says we're to rebuke people in the grace of God. There's no excuse for rejecting the grace of God. And some of you here today continue to do that. There's no excuse for rejecting the grace of God. And some of you, you came with family because you're visiting this week. And so you had to come to church anyway. And uh, because you were visiting 
family. And some of this talk about death and hell and me being a sinner makes you angry. Well, Scripture teaches us that it's supposed to make you angry, that the cross is very offensive. And we're taught that over and over and over. The cross is offensive. And so, Scripture does rebuke you in the grace of God. There's no excuse. You are responsible. There's no excuse for rejecting God's grace. God has done too much for us in Christ Jesus for you to do that. We must speak the truth. Declare it. Does he say, declare these things? William Hendrickson says in summary, verses 11 through 14 teach us that the reason why every member of the family should live a life of self-mastery, fairness, and devotion is that the grace of God in Christ has penetrated our moral and spiritual darkness and has brought salvation to all men. That this grace is also our great teacher who leads us away from ungodliness and worldly passions and guides us along the path of holiness. That is the effective preparer who causes us to look forward with eagerness to the appearing and glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. And finally, that it is the thoroughgoing purifier so that redeemed from all disobedience to God's law, we become Christ's peculiar treasure filled with a zest for excellent deeds. God's grace has appeared. God's grace has appeared so that we might live as we're instructed to live. God's grace was born so that He might die. And all for God's glory. I would encourage you not to reject the grace of God. To repent and say yes, even today. Charles Simeon talks about this grace. This is the true character of the gospel. It is grace, mere grace, altogether grace from first to last. It brings a free, a full, a finished salvation. It requires nothing to be done to purchase its blessings or to merit them in any measure. In it, God gives all, and we receive all. Amen? That's the Word of God. Let's pray. Let's pray. Let's pray. Let's pray.